Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. This week's Dover Download Podcast celebrates the end of summer with a little bit longer episode for you to get through the summer haze. First up, we'll talk to John Storr and Gretchen Young from our Community Services Department about groundwater resources and how we manage our water system here in Dover. After that, Tom Hindle is going to stop by to talk to us about an upcoming book he's got released looking at Dover history and all of the documentation he's done over his career here in Dover. As we continue to grow and evolve in Dover, we hear a lot about concerns relative to water, water needs, and drinking water availability. And drinking water certainly is one of those things you can't create out of thin air. Maybe you can create it out of bedrock, though. We're going to learn today. We're sitting down with Gretchen Young, who's our Environmental Projects Manager, and John Storr, who is our Director of Community Services. Welcome, folks. Thanks, Chris. Good morning, Chris. Thank you for having us. We heard from John last time he was here about how long he's been with the city and in what roles. How about yourself? You've been here... I've been here 10 years, maybe. Yeah, almost eight years. Uh, I started as the assistant city engineer in the engineering department. And then for about two years have been the environmental projects manager focusing on environmental projects for the city, water resources and other projects like that. What listeners probably don't know is while you've been with the city for eight years, you've had a longer engagement with the city. I remember working with you on the North End Fire Station when you were in the private sector. That's right. That's right. I've been uh, I've been a resident here for about 20 years and been working locally in engineering firms and doing work in Dover for that full time. That's great. Both of you, I think, were involved with a uh, workshop to the council a year ago or maybe about a year ago discussing water concerns. And we hear it every year, particularly in the summer. We always sort of preemptively think about that. I remember last year, a lot of what triggered that workshop was there was some pretty heated conversation actually tied to some zoning amendments where some residents thought that all the development we were seeing at the time really was driving the drought. Both of you gave a great presentation that sort of talked about baseline water elevations and our water infrastructure. Where are we today? And I don't mean it from a drought standpoint. I mean, from a what is our water capacity? Where are we meeting the needs uh, that we have today? What's your opinion on that? Chris, I'll start off. I think the uh, presentation referred to, we did a presentation in October of 21. It was to the planning board and the city council. And the message I tried to convey is that the current growth really isn't impacting our long-term supply because residential growth is really a drop in the bucket. To give you some numbers, maybe on a comparison, you know, we're a city of 32,000 people. During the wintertime months, our average daily demand that we pump for water is like 1.8 million. Meanwhile, Portsmouth is significantly smaller, residential-based, but with the industrial base they have at Pease, they produce over 6 million gallons a day. So the, the takeaway point I tried to make at that presentation is that we don't have a water capacity issue, the way I try to phrase it is that we have a short-term contamination issue because one of our highest productive aquifers is currently offline while Gretchen and her team are overseeing the construction of a state-of-the-art treatment plant. We're going to have you know three phases of treatment. We would deal with iron and manganese, any type of contamination, PFAS. We have carbon absorption. We're going to get things down to the non-detect level. We hope to have that up and running by the end of 2023. And that aquifer has 
three different well points, and that'll gain us another 40% of production. So after we get through 2023, unless the city had some type of, I call it a wet process, some type of industry came to town, needed a half a million gallons a day, I don't foresee that the, you know, the short-term 20-year residential growth is going to impact our supplies. So Gretchen, how do you and the consultants we have uh, on board, how do you measure things like John just discussed, the, the water elevation and what our needs are going forward? What sort of variables are you looking for to see our water quality and things of that nature? That's right. It's an adaptive process. Um, we are continually monitoring all of our wells and our aquifers. We've got 11 wells in four different aquifers throughout the city. We're 100% groundwater for the city of Dover and all of the waters obviously more towards the north end of the city because it, it does become brackish down towards the, the southern end as you get into the Great Bay. So we are constantly measuring that, uh, constantly looking at what the development impacts are, always looking um, to make sure that the water quality is maintaining. And um, we are also being creative about looking towards the future, whether it's interconnects with other communities. We recently installed an interconnect with the city of Summersworth, which allows us in emergency situations to tap into their resources. And we're hoping that will actually carry through to Rochester and other communities. And then we are hopefully going to do an interconnect with the city of Portsmouth and bring in all of those communities to the south. So those are some opportunities. And then we can talk a little bit more about looking at bedrock, water exploration, and even some other expanding outside of the city of Dover. Two things that I want to circle back to what yep. you just said. The first was the interconnects. These are emergency only. These are not full-time on the go. Today's a low water day. We're going to turn on That's the interconnect. Right. It is truly in an emergency situation, a PFAS or some other really catastrophic that we would turn these on, correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I could give you a, for instance, I don't know that we've activated the Summersworth one in the two or three years that it's been in service, but we try to exercise it to make sure it's all set. We're actually preparing. Summersworth is doing some maintenance work. They're going to schedule their crew to replace a couple of valves during the overnight hours when water consumption is down. But we've preemptively prepared the interconnection because there's like a quarter of a mile of transmission line. So we flush that out, make sure we've got fresh water and a chlorine residual. And our crews will be available should Summersworth have any problems. We would be able to send them some water for a very short-term duration just to make sure they don't run out. Some people may ask, well, we've got the drought ongoing, but this truly is for an emergency connection. It's like why we have our water storage tanks. We keep 4 million gallons in storage. So if this is short-term pinch, you know, a water main break, um, planned maintenance, a well goes down, we're able to move that water back and forth between the cities. The way I think of an interconnect is it's like auto insurance. You have it and you pay for it, but you hope you never need it. Exactly. You know, and to your point about exercising them, you want to make sure that when you do need it, it works. So you maintain it. It's like a generator. You have to maintain them. You have to make sure that they come on and, and cycle, but hopefully we're good to go. Yeah. So Gretchen, the second thing that, that you brought up that I want to touch on is you mentioned that we have four aquifers. Now, to me, an aquifer, it's, it's a drainage basin. It's, it's where water collects, groundwater collects as it comes from the sky via rain, or I suppose it could be seepage from river or other sources. Is that fair? Or is that, am I missing something? Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's collected from the from the rain and it gets into the groundwater and it's just a, a large area of porous material like sand uh, where the water can collect and uh, we can draw from it. So do we have 
sand, gravel, bedrock. What, what kind of wells are those wells that we have? You said they're all subsurface. We don't do any surface water. That's right. Wells. We don't do any surface water. We do, yeah, they're in the sand and gravel. And the, the benefit from using subsurface is actually the the water quality from the subsurface is a, a lot better. So it's, although we do have some contamination that we'll be treating at the water treatment plant, the new water treatment plant, there is less treatment required than, than doing a traditional reservoir and treating surface water. Now, I know when, um, when I bought my first house years ago, one of the inspections was for radon and the inspector said to me, it's New Hampshire, it's granite, radon's everywhere. I got to think, and I don't, I'm not saying there's radon in our water. I'm, I'm using it as an example of a, of a um, mineral or material that, that is ever present. I got to think that no matter where you are, if you are doing groundwater-based water sourcing, there is treatment that has to occur, whether it's for iron and manganese, whether it's for adding fluoride. There's some of that that goes on no matter where we draw the water from. It's that. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. And I think, you know, we're here talking about the public drinking water system, but Gretchen has been involved in an initiative. And I, I guess if I could share a point is I worry for some of the people that have private wells that ignorance can be bliss. And New Hampshire is notorious for radionuclides, for arsenic. And geologists may cringe at this, but I would say the deeper you go with a well, the more likely you are to have some type of contamination. Gretchen has been dealing with an initiative to try to get arsenic tested in private wells just to identify hotspots. Because I think across the state, I believe they have data that shows uh, higher cancer rates where there is concentrations of arsenic that might be in private wells. But for our city wells, we do pull out some naturally occurring iron and manganese. Um, We do adjust the pH to elevate it a little bit so it's not corrosive for pipes. I I think a point kind of getting onto the chemistry a bit, but with our water that we supply, we don't have any lead and copper in it, but we try to elevate the pH so it's not corrosive to residential pipes. And then we add a corrosion inhibitor. It's a polyorthophosphate blend. So that tries to keep lead from leaching out of residential pipes. But I guess the point being, I I guess my takeaway here is that ignorance can be bliss. People, I would encourage even private well owners to test their well, maybe, you know, get an initial test done, see what the parameters are, maybe follow up within, within a year or two. And if people have curiosities, I would encourage them to find a way to reach out to Gretchen. Could we touch upon that arson? thing that you were working on? Yeah, we, I'm working with uh, New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services to do, actually, it's a statewide initiative to um, help private homeowners test their water and make sure that they don't have arsenic issues or don't have any other issues. And that's something that we're actually underway right now, but we are going to start an outreach campaign. So stay tuned for that. Other testing, John was talking about the lead and copper. The city actually does annual lead and copper tests for residents. And that as John alluded to, is not testing the water so much as what could potentially be coming from pipes going through um, in you know private homes. So when you do, if you hear about that or if you participate that in that, that's just um, making sure that in your individual home, there's no, you can test to make sure there's no old lead pipes in there. And that's just, that's something that we definitely recommend all residents do. Speaking of oldness, I think one of the reasons why we want to do things like that is because we have a mature, I'll use that term, mm-hmm. water system. Uh, in my office, I have a piece of, of water pipe that was dug up under Orchard Street, and it's wood. Uh, and I think that someone told me it's probably from the 1880s when we, we first started having a water system here in Dover. 
If you could touch on that, I mean, clearly technology has changed since the 1880s when we first would have had a, a water system here in Dover. How advanced is our distribution system here? That's a good question. I would say that our distribution system is a mix of old and new. <laughs> Unfortunately, if people had the pleasure of driving on Central Ave by Wentworth Douglas Hospital and how torn up the road was. That was a that was related to replacing an 1880s vintage pipe that was severely corroded, had failed in the past, and we had very little confidence it would last much longer. And a, a horrifying thought is a uh, you know the public works director is Wentworth Douglas running out of water. So now we have redundant loops up through there. We have a, a process over the next 10 years where we hope to continue replacing some of the old pipes on Central Ave. That that do date back to the 1880s. So there is some old infrastructure there. When we put the new pipes in, there are similar materials, but behind the scenes, people don't appreciate, we have what we call SCADA. That's an acronym for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. And our water is constantly monitored. There are fail-safe programs. Operators can control the water system off their phone from a remote site. And there are fail-safes. If something goes out of parameter, the system shut down. So that's the newer type of technology, but we still are relying on old buried pipes. And unfortunately, people are going to see the impacts of construction. We don't rip up the roads just for fun, but there's a driving need that if those pipes were to collapse and fail, people could be without water. You could be without fire protection and the basic sanitation needs. So I don't know if that covered it, but it, it's no. a mix of the old and new systems. Yeah, I think that that's great. And I think looking forward, Gretchen, you sort of alluded to we're looking at different water sources. We're looking at making sure that we're prepared for the future. And, and so what sort of things are you looking at in that regard? Well, we're right in the middle of um, updating our aquifer management plan to really see how we're using the aquifer and how um, best to move, move our operations around so that aquifers have opportunity to recharge. Um, and then in addition to that, we're looking at bedrock sources. Uh, bedrock, we it is definitely less water that um, you're able to get from a bedrock well, but we do have a couple of areas up in the north end of the city that um, could produce some water that would make sense for us to explore further. So that may be coming in the next few years. I think, too, one of the things that you and I talked about in my previous role was the need to continually update and pay attention to our groundwater management zoning districts and be aware of the uses and the uh, restrictions that we might put in place or maybe take away depending on the way technology and, and uh, the environment changes. But I think that's another way we, we continue to think ahead for the future. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I would say one thing you cannot, uh, we have our aquifers, we have tapped into the largest resources. So we really, the best thing we can do is protect them. And I, I'll bring it up because I say it a number of times, but in the wintertime, salt management is so important because really pulling salinity back out of water is essentially impossible. It is possible, but it's so financially burdensome that it doesn't make sense. So really minimizing the winter road salt that we're using. The city is excellent. We're really leaders in the in the state and in the region in reducing our salt usage using brine and other initiatives. And now we just really need to look to the private developments, private properties to uh, make sure that they're following suit. You know, that's a, a good point you alluded to and that we all hear people gripe about snow, but people forget that snow and rain are how we recharge those aquifers. The groundwater, we need rain, we need snow. And so to that point, John, uh, one of the things that stood out to me last October was that you reminded everyone in the room that the drought is not Dover-based. 
that when we talk about uh, warm weather, dry weather, we're talking about Northeast at the very minimum. It's not something we're alone in a vacuum facing. No, that, that, that's a good point. It's a, it is a very regionalized issue. And I've heard uh, heard people say like golf courses will be pumping out of a river and during a drought, they can't do it. And everybody's like, fine, just go tap into the public water system. And it's like, why do you think they're going to be any less impacted right. by the drought? So we are collectively, I think fortunately in the Northeast, we tend to be blessed with an abundance of resources. Although the closer you get to the ocean, it's more more limited for aquifers and surface waters. But uh, yeah, it is a regional basis. And a couple of things, Chris, I hope I don't stray too far off tangent, but uh, I think one of the things Gretchen was mentioning about exploring additional supplies, I also think it's noteworthy to point out to maximize the capacity of our aquifers, we do have a couple of recharge facilities. We've been doing it for a long time and it's sort of been recognized as cutting edge now. We've been doing it for, for years, but for our Pudding Hill aquifer adjacent to the Bellamy, when the Bellamy River is high, and our Pudding Hill Aquifer might be lower than full capacity, we can draw water out of the Bellamy to recharge it. And we do the same for what we call our Hoppers Aquifer up in the northern part of the town where we can recharge out of the Isinglass. And one of the things we're doing, we have monitoring wells everywhere. So we have real-time data on the level of the aquifers and the level of the rivers. So when we can recharge and when different aquifers have to maybe go up or down. Well, I appreciate you both coming in. Uh, John, we didn't do this the last time you were in, and Gretchen, we'll do this with you the next time you come in. Uh, but John, we like to end with uh, asking people to name three things, whether it's people, places, ideas, or what have you, that make that stand out to you about the community, about Dover, why you, what you think makes Dover unique. So uh, concisely. Well, you have three three things. Mine are mine are all going to be through the eyes of a dad with a five year old daughter. That's cool. So the Henry Law Park, number one, the Children's Museum, and then probably the Garrison Tower to climb up there with her and get over. Dad has a fear of heights. My five year old is fearless, but it's interesting to climb the tower, and she's the brave one, and I'm the one with the knees knocking. But Mm -hmm. I think for a five year old, those are some real gems for the city of Dover. That is very cool. I'm glad you contributed those. Thank you both for being here, and we will talk soon. I definitely want to have you back. We need to talk about stormwater utility. There's a couple things that came out today that I think we want to follow up on, so we'll talk with you soon. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Can't wait for the This Week in Dover history portion of the podcast? We got a surprise for you. Tom Middle is going to swing by and talk to us about a book he's got coming out documenting Dover's past and talking to us about all of the changes he's seen in the community. Sit back and enjoy. We talk a lot on this podcast about Dover's future and where we're going, but in order to understand that, we need to understand the past. One of the great documentarians of Dover's past is Tom Hindle. I I noted to him earlier that I think that Tom is one of the the three living legends in the the Dover historical area, Kathy Bowden, who we'll have to contact soon, and Mike Gillis, our esteemed media director here in the city, is, is the third. Today, we're going to talk to Tom and and pick his brain and learn a little bit about him and about Dover's history from his perspective. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. It's uh, definitely great to see you. Great to have you here. If you could just in a a few uh, sentences, uh, give the listener a little background, a little what brought you here today, what what people might need to know um, about Tom. As as most people know, I grew up in Dover, Uh, remember Dover in the 50s and 60s. 
I left and went to California and New Jersey doing commercial and fashion photography and returned to Dover when I got married in the mid 70s, 75, I think it was, which was right in the middle of uh, urban renewal. I often used to joke and tease them and say urban renewal, I mean, urban removal. Removal, yep. Uh, but that is when Dover started to visually change, you know, the way I remember it. But I also seem to remember that very little was being preserved in the way of documenting what was happening. And I had just, when I came back, Andy Rivers was the big photographer in the area, did commercial, and he used to do a lot of work for the city and all the businesses around. And so when he had a commercial shoot, he would hire me to go and help him. And when he retired, I ended up buying him out. I bought his collection, all his negatives, all his history. But I also continued to photograph more business forms, Davidson Rubber, GE, a lot of the accounts that he had. But also, I figured, you know, documentation photographically now is going to stop because he was really the last photographer out there that was doing anything. So I took it upon myself at my own time and expense just to start documenting. And I think one of the first things I did was the renovation of Franklin Square. And I can remember when we rededicated the fountain, we brought water. A lot of people don't remember this. We brought water from Dover, England and poured it into the fountain and rededicated and christened that again as Franklin Square. And it was a big event. And of course, as everybody knows, kids would put soap suds in the fountain, and that was kind of the end of the fountain. And now it's the uh, uh, lovely planter that's there. But that kind of got me going. And then when I purchased the home of Major Joseph Abbott, who owned the Dover Ice Business, owned a granite quarry. He was police chief in the 1860s, city marshal. He became the chief engineer of the fire department in the 1880s. He reorganized the fire department after the Baptist Church fire on Washington Street. He was uh, instrumental in putting together the fire alarm system that we have. And I purchased his home and the first one out of his home to own it And in the barn was all his business records, invoices, trunks filled with Dover memorabilia. And that kind of got me going. I said, boy, these invoices are lovely. And I started, whenever I'd be in an antique shop or something, I'd see, I'd buy it. And that just grew and grew and grew and grew. And I have volumes now that go from the Civil War to present of dedication ceremonies and businesses opening and closing and city hall, uh, city council. (laughs) Burning and being rebuilt. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's, uh, all this ephemera. And just, but I also started to track down the families after getting rivers. I said, what about some of the other photographers? Thornton Gray lived up on Mount Vernon Street, his wife. When she had to go into a nursing home, I found all of his negatives and camera equipment was still there. So I bought that from her so that I would own it. And he also was a school photographer, city uh, photographer. He documented the centennial of 1955. He also was the official photographer when President Truman was at City Hall. I have the camera, I have all the negatives, and I have the ribbon he wore for that event. So this just kept snowballing. And just kept going and going and right up to present. I mean, I everybody see me running around at events, taking pictures. Right. Uh, you know, even though I wasn't officially hired to be there, I would I would be there right. just to document it so that there was a photographic record. And now putting these books together gives me a chance to share some of that visually by bringing these images alive in the, in the books. So you've got a new book coming out, uh, Dover, New Hampshire through time. This is part two. There was a part one previously. And these aren't your first two books, right? The, the, no, these I, are did, a I did. I did a book way back in 1994 that was Dover and it was all in black and white. And it was just a, a early photos and it was the photographic series. And then in 1998, when Arcadia Publishing started Images, what is now Images of America, my book was absorbed into that series as one of the very first 
And that Images of America now, of course, is all over the country. I also was involved, I think it was 2017, when um, a company from the West Coast was going around to cities and tying in with local newspapers. In this case, they were going to do Tri-City Memories of Dover, Rochester, and and it was through Foster's. Well, Foster's did not have any negative file. Uh, Rochester, I own most of the Rochester original negatives of the Rochester stuff. The company came to me and said, if you don't get behind us and help us, we won't have a book. There weren't enough photos available. So I worked with them on that book. And then Mark Lino did a book on the factory fire, uh, right. 1907 mill fire. And uh, I worked with him on that, helping with the layout and furnished all the visuals and images from my negative collection. And then in 2020, I was working on a book. I've been working on a coffee table book for a couple of years. And when I finally got to where it was about ready to start talking to a publisher, I found it was going to cost me about $20,000 out of pocket to publish this thing because it was a combination of color, Dover trade cards and invoices. And when you do pictures in sepia, that's considered four color. So basically it's color printing, very pricey. Well, $20,000, I have to mortgage my house to put a book out. So then I was approached by Alan Sutton, who was the publisher I worked with way back in 1994 in England. He's doing this America Through Time series and said, gee, he says, you've got enough stuff. Let's do Dover. So I did the Dover uh, in 2020. And it was so popular that now coming out will be volume two. And it's a bigger version. The first book was 96 pages. And this one, they let me expand to 128 pages. And what I did in this book is I included ephemera, which means invoices, trade cards, even some uh, fire badges are in my collection to complement the photos. But also at the back of the book, in the acknowledgement section, there's about eight or 10 pages recognizing the photographers whose negatives are in my collection. So when you look in the back of the book, uh, you know, here's Brigham. And and in the book, there's a daguerreotype portrait of Dover's first mayor and his wife, Abigail, that I believe was taken by Brigham, who died in 1895, but he was one of Dover's first photographers. But it goes down the line, Horton Mm -hmm. and Wentworth and Thornton Gray and then Rivers, Andy Andy Rivers' father, uh, J. Edward Rivers, came from Canada in 1931. He opened a studio upstairs in the Bracewell block. And a year later, the building burns to the ground. And fortunately, I have the camera that the fireman lugged down the ladder and saved. He moved to Second Street, the national block on uh, on the corner of Second upstairs. Uh, That's where he operated from until they moved around the corner on Third Street, which is now the parking lot for Ross Furniture. But that was the old bus station and Rivers Studio. And then he moved around to 464 Central Avenue, opened the camera store, but continued to, this was Andy, continued to operate a commercial business. So those photographers are recognized, giving them credit for uh, the pictures. And and what uh, is going on is back in the 60s and 70s, when regular film uh, was available, glass plate negatives had been discarded. Glass plate negatives came out in 1880, the dry plate. And that's what photographers used right into the 1920s when acetate film started to come out. And these old glass negatives, and a glass negative is an emulsion literally coated on a piece of glass. So they're fragile. They require special care. And back when I first started collecting cameras in 1968 and 70s, collectors that were interested in daguerreotypes, tin types, and so forth, had no interest in glass negatives because you had to have a, a dark room in order to reproduce the image. So the negatives were useless, and people were th- selling them to the junk men. They were going to landfills. 
emulsions were being scraped off to use the glass, uh, or they just hung out in barn attic. And so when I came back to Dover, I started tracking down. Now, back in the mid-60s, when I left Dover to go to California, a gentleman living next door to my parents up on the corner of Abbott Street, which is now dermatology, that was Horton's studio. And that old guy knew I had an interest in photography and gave me a box of glass plate negatives. I had no idea what I was doing with them, but he thought I should have them. I tucked them away and left Dover and went to California. When I came back and rediscovered these in my parents' house, it started to prompt me, what's going on with the rest of the negatives? And I started tracking down the families of photographers. I now have literally over 100,000 glass plate negatives, over a dozen known photographers, and a lot of unknown stuff. And the collection is all over the country. Grand Canyon, the missions in California, Mardi Gras 1905, uh, the original Plymouth Rock Monument, everything. It, it's it, including, of course, Dover and Rochester in this this area as well as Massachusetts. And and a quick interesting story is I received a phone call from a gentleman, this was probably in the early 1980s, saying, are you still interested in glass negatives over in Newmarket? And I met him on a rainy, grizzly Sunday morning, and here's boxes and boxes of glass, just all raw, no envelopes, nothing, just wooden boxes. I start pulling the plates out, holding them up to the sky, and they're all portraits, unidentified. And I said, what in the world am I want these for? They're, I don't even know who these people are. Pretty soon I pulled one out, and I don't know why or how I recognized him, but it was 1915 Williamson, who was police chief in Dover, rode with Buffalo Bill Cody at Wabonnet <laughs> Creek when they caught Chief Yellowhand. So I start to dig through the box more, and I find down the bottom of the box, here's a little envelope with Horton on it. So I bought the box. I lugged him home. I'm at the back of my Pontiac station wagon because they were covered with rat droppings and pigeon crap having sat in a shed all these years. I start pulling them out. Here's this one envelope marked Summersworth. And I said, Summersworth. So I start opening up. I hold it up again to the sky. And there's a picture of the Opera House clock tower. I look at another one. There's the Stratford Bank building on the corner of Central Square. I said, that's not Summersworth. That's Dover. But the pictures look like some kind of ruins, look like a yeah. fire or something. So I start laying these out on a light table. And all of a sudden, I realize... These are the photographs that Horton took of the demolition of the Kachiko Printworks. Oh, wow. It was a record of those buildings being, I was so excited. I got on the phone, Sonny, I'm calling Kathy Bowden. I said, Kathy, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning. <laughs> I said, have you, she was Mill historian. I said, Kathy, have you ever seen pictures of the demolition of the, she said, no. Here I am with a stack of negatives, and one of those is represented in the book under the Horton. So let's talk about the, the book or books, because um, I think it's important to set the stage with the first volume. They're chronological, is my understanding, that, that you have uh, material in the first volume that is older age-wise than the, the no, it kind of No, it's kind of a mixture. I started, mixture, okay. I started uh, the first book not realizing that I would be doing a second book, okay. and I chose to start the book with the Opera House because that was such a spectacular building and was destroyed. Sure. Uh, so I started with the Opera House, and it shows a picture of the exterior, uh, a photo of the auditorium, and a picture of the fire. Then I did Dover City Hall, and I showed that, and I showed a picture of Mayor Keefe with the original city council and won a copy of the original blueprint, which I have in my collection. And then it moves on and it goes through Central Square and includes a little bit of the mills. And it kind of winds its way out uh, up First Street, Dover Drug, uh, the old Morrill uh, block on the corner and works its way up 
to the hospital and eventually ends at Stratford Farms and Weeks Restaurant. So this book, I started with the Dover's first and second city hall and include I.B. Williams' Bell Factory that wasn't in the first book. I include the mill number one, Claristat, Spalding Fiber. I included the landing that wasn't in the first book. And I again worked my way up First Street. And when I get into Franklin Square, I feature the other side of the street. Nice. The Ramble Inn and Fishiani used to be there, Robinson Brothers Bottling. And then I go around the corner and I have probably the only photograph of the Baptist Church that sits where the Dover Fire Station is. And that church was moved across the street and became the Clement Theater, one of Dover's first silent movie theaters. And people would climb the stairs for 10 cents, sit in the church pew, and a guy would hand crank a Powers projector, which I have in my collection, and that was the movie. And that eventually became the Broadway Theater, and then 1945 burned and became the Uptown Theater. So then it goes the Broadway Hotel, which is now a vacant lot, and works its way out. The Guppy House, uh, which is now Dustin's Market and, and Sweet Meadows, uh, crosses over and goes to Garrison Hill. So it include all the three towers that were there, and then works its way back down Central Avenue, picking up some of the businesses that we didn't have, Hoyt and Wentworth, which is now the law firm, and and uh, Raul and Watson, which is now the Lebanese restaurant. I include the Lebanese church and it winds its way down. I get into Farnham's First Street, uh, the new building on First Street. I have pictures of the original mill housing that was there, now replaced with with the uh, new uh, complex. Bernard's Hat Shop and Paul's Jewelry is now Jewelry Creation. And it, it winds its way down Dover Point. I include Bellamy Park, the original Bellamy Park. Oh, wow. uh, the um, auto part, Roland's uh, sub shop is included. <laughs> and it goes down uh, to uh, the, the Middlebrook Farm, okay. and it shows a picture of the guys picking the apples in the big wooden barrels, and then the next picture is one of the original Applevale houses. The apple orchard becomes Applevale. Yeah. And that was all part of the Middlebrook Farm. And then it goes down the Roberts Farm, which at the time was the oldest family farm, and then the Tuttle's Farm. And it shows the original Tuttle's Barn and gives a little bit of background, shows the original uh, Penn Tuttle's home and then what it looks like today, and then ends up with all of the bridges. The original railroad bridge that oh. came across, the building of what is the General Sullivan Bridge, the construction, and then it shows the tolls, collecting the tolls and all the toll takers. And then it ends with what is the fate? It shows a picture of the General Sullivan Bridge today and what's the fate of the bridge. That is the last surviving bridge by those designers and the largest single span bridge left in the state from that era. So kind of a shame to see it go, but it probably will. But anyways, that's how the book ends. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of a nice photographic journey and starts uh, one of the first pictures in Central Square is 1860 when Lincoln walked the streets to get a, a shave. So the book goes from 1860 all the way up to present. Well, that, there's a lot of great material there. And I, I flipped through it and I look forward to really diving in and getting some some more a lot of pictures that have never been seen so that's i find interesting and then the comment you made earlier about ephemera and that this isn't just a photography book of then and now comparing and contrasting that that you have a lot of that sort of background data and and sort of setting the stage setting the scene and and i think that's a fascinating aspect is that normal for this type of book or is that something that you well a lot of the a lot of the then and now books typically just have then and now two pictures on a page and that's it right and I kind of broke the mold by putting three and four pictures and overlaying a, a document over part of the picture and kind of broke the mold with this particular series. 
Uh, I was kind of glad they let me do that. These books are not meant to be historical books, history books. They're the kind of a book that you have on your coffee table and you sit down and you just want to enjoy and you pick up. And for a lot of people, it's going to bring back a lot of memories when they grew up in Dover. For people that have moved away, it gives them an opportunity to see what Dover looks like today. It's just an enjoyable read. You don't have to get into reading and getting to the hard detail of the history. And I'm just hoping that you know, even with the younger kids, that it will stimulate enough interest. Gee, that's kind of interesting that they will go and hopefully do more research on that particular topic. One of the things and one of the ways that you and I met was when you're, you were involved with the Woodman Museum. And that was, I think, the other side of the, the photography collection you had was th- this involvement with sharing Dover's history. Well, like I said, when I came back to Dover, uh, I just felt there was a lot being destroyed. I saw a lot of older buildings being torn down, architectural facades were being lost. I didn't see anybody really saving things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stevens, who was a city uh, clerk years ago, used to do like I'm doing now, save little bits and pieces of, you know, dedication ceremonies, and he put them together in a scrapbook. And I've kind of been doing that with volumes of three ring binders uh, that go all the way back to the Civil War letters and whatever. Um, And when I came back, I was friendly with Bob Whitehouse, who was a trustee at the Woodman. Sure. So I said, Bob, you know, what can I do? I'd be glad to volunteer. So I started as a as a grunt, if you will. I would help change the light bulbs. I would, when they used to run the films at the Dover High Auditorium, I would go and help set up. And and uh, Tom Munson used to be the projectionist for the school. And these travel logs would come in and people would come. And, and I helped out with that. And then I would help moving displays around. And for 20 years, I was just a grunt volunteer. And when Bob decided that he thought it was time for him to step down and saw my growing passion for this place. I mean, I used to go there as a kid in the 50s and really enjoyed it. And they used to let us roam around as kids and sit on the floor and look at the alligator and all that stuff. Yeah. So I became a head trustee in 1998. The buildings were in really rough condition. Uh, There was no money. All the money they had was whatever interest was accrued. It wasn't enough to maintain. There was no admission. They were only open a couple of days a week. Things were pretty critical. So um, we established at that time a membership. Uh, We started to put together a newsletter and we started getting people to make donations. And I can remember going to Senator Chandler, who is the descendant of John Parker Hale and Lucy. And I had written an article for the union leader about the situation at the Woodman. And he saw it. He was in a nursing home up in Concord. And I got a letter from him. He said, every time I come to Dover, the museum's closed. He never had an opportunity to set foot in his ancestral home. So I went around and took a bunch of pictures, especially of the Hale exhibit, but the whole thing. And I sent him this packet of pictures. I get a call from his daughter and she says, my father would like to make a donation to help with the kick off the campaign for the fundraiser. And she said, I think it's in the tune of about $10,000. So, boy, I couldn't get up to Concord fast enough. (laughs) So I went up, the family was there, and I greeted and met him for the first time. And he was a very conservative state senator, real conservative state senator. It's interesting stories. And uh, so we'd take a picture with the whole family, and he's sitting there in a wheelchair, and he hands me an envelope. And, you know, I opened the envelope, and it was for $25,000. That's awesome. He was so impressed with what was going on and the fact that we were trying to preserve the building. And that allowed us to have the mortar properly done and get lights in. And we basically rehabbed and preserved the the Hale House, and that was the kickoff. And that started, and it just kept mushroom and memberships. And uh, I was involved uh, with the museum for 40 years. So one of the things 
things that struck me as you were talking is you start this exploration in the mid-70s. And one of the things that spurs you on is the removal, as you said, urban removal. <laughs> and, and it strikes me that today we hear people say, oh, that building is, is being torn down or that's being replaced. This is nothing new. From what it sounds like, this is a, uh, a process that started 50 years ago, this reinvention, rededication, as it were, revisioning. And it's interesting to hear your perspective that even in the good old days, people weren't taking seriously what was there. And, and we're lucky to have, have had you and others step forward and say, no, this is important to document and to understand. Yeah, I think in the 1970s, and it's not just Dover, I think this was across the country. We were in a phase where it was easier to tear down and build something new. I know when I first started collecting negatives, I was so happy to find the negatives in their original envelopes and their original boxes. They were documented and I started storing them. And then in the 1980s, when we start becoming more conscious of proper care and conservation, and I think this started to spread structurally with architecture. Sure. And all of a sudden, I realized I now have this obligation. These negatives that I'm holding need to be properly archivally stored. And people don't realize, I mean, a lot of people think that I'm hoarding all these negatives for my own gain, but I have spent a lot of money purchasing in the first place. They weren't given to me. I had to buy them. But then on top of that, now I have to turn around and invest in all these archival envelopes, special free. They're four-way wrapped. So each negative is wrapped and then inserted into a sleeve. I had to build a 10 by 12 room that somewhat stabilized the environment, that all of these things are in metal file cabinets. And when you open a file cabinet drawer, it's end-to-end -end glass negatives. And so these negatives are costing me money just sitting there. And what I started to do in order to afford, because I'm doing this all out of pocket, I got no assistance from anybody, is that I would sell a couple of pictures and use that money to buy more acid-free material. And it just sure. kept going and going and going. And most of my collection now, I still have some unknowns and some miscellaneous stuff that's still sitting in the original boxes. But the major all the important stuff, the historical stuff that I felt important. And as you said, when these buildings were being torn down in Dover, I was there with a camera taking them down uh, all along Locust Street. Locust Street now is all parking lots in that area. They used to be all buildings behind the, the pizza place. And that was all restaurants. And uh, Phil Rinaldi's grandfather had a restaurant in there. And I documented that being bulldozed. Uh, I have pictures of the Pierce Church coming down. I have pictures of the Belknap Church coming down, which is now a parking lot. So with all of this inventory, do you have a asset management program or is it all in your head? Like if, if well, you, if you, if someone says, do you have the, the Bell well, church, how do you find that? Most of it is in my head. When I first started doing this, we didn't have computers. Sure. In fact, when I built my dark room, I built the dark room specifically for glass plates. I have a, a hundred year old Elwood glass plate enlarger that I restored. The dark room was built to accommodate and deal with glass negatives. And for years, I was the only one in the area that could deal with glass plates. And all the historical societies, even down in Massachusetts and Maine, were bringing me their glass negatives sure. because for years they had just sat in closets and they had no idea what they had. So now I'm able to transfer that into positive images. I can remember Rye. They had boxes. Some were even cracked. They were stuck together. And I tried to save. Usually you can't save them both. One has to break. And I would save. And I documented. I even documented the broken ones because somewhere in the background might be a picture of a hotel or a building that's now gone. Gotcha. And I spent two years. But I that's what I used to do. And But to answer your question, uh, computers came later. I 
came later. So uh, yes, some of it is, but yes, a lot of it is not. A lot of it is, but I, like like uh, Dover is pretty much alphabetized by the subject, the business. I can open the drawer A to Z gotcha. and usually pull Good. something out. But I might pull out a file, say, on the Opera House, and there might be 10 images in there or 15 images in there that relate to that subject. If you had to pick one or two that are images you want to make sure you see daily, weekly, monthly, something that you return to quite often, what would those be? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, I find myself, even though I've worked on this this book, for well over a year, and the same with the other book. I, Myra says, you're going to burn the pages out. You're reading the book. I still sit and pick the book up and look through it, even though I know it's there. I put it together, the copy, but I still, uh, I just enjoy going back through. I mean, I often joke that I, I can associate myself with Dover probably at the turn of the century better than I could today. I can walk you right down Central Avenue in 1890 and tell you every business that was there. Today, I would have a hard time doing that. Well, I really appreciate you coming in today. This has been fascinating, and I'm really looking forward to diving into the book. Can you tell the listeners how they can purchase the book and how they can learn more about you and your collection? Yeah, the book is going to be available uh, at Photosmith, uh, the Chamber Visitor Center, and the City Clerk's Office uh, at City Hall. Once it gets released, officially released, it'll be available at Barnes & Noble, um, Amazon, all the regular channels. Sure. Uh, it'll be available. I am personally uh, doing a few shows like the Dover High Band Craft Show and a few shows like that to be there to talk to people and make the book available. And all of the books being sold locally at Photosmith, City Hall and stuff are all signed copies. Nice. So the last thing that we ask every guest to sort of... Uh think about is if you can identify three people, events, places, ideas that you think represent Dover that make it a a unique place. Are there three elements that jump out to you? And and it could be the opera house or something in the past, or it certainly could be a... a Um, Yeah, that's a fun question. Um, I I think one of the things that is overlooked in Dover, and again, my passion being involved for so many years is the Woodman Museum. Sure. It's not a Dover museum, but it's a local history, science, and art museum. Um, ex- excellent. Do- I mean, Dover is really fortunate to have have that uh, museum. I think the fact that Dover is the oldest permanent settlement in New Hampshire is historical in itself. I personally kind of hate to see some of the growing changes, uh, having grown up in Dover, you know, the way it was, but things change and, uh, you know, the city grows. I like to see people preserve their interest in Dover's past, um, remembering Dover. Uh, I'm hoping that we get back to calling Central Square, Central Square, and not Lower Square, and Franklin Square, Franklin Square, not Upper Square. I actually meant to ask you about that. Bringing some of this back, because I know people even stuff gets published and it officially upper square. Well, it's not officially upper square. In 1981, we declared it again, Franklin Square. Right. Uh, and people don't know the history about Franklin Street and how that all came to be. But uh, I think, uh, especially with the celebration coming up, that it would be a good time to bring Tuttle Square back and Lafayette Square back and let people kind of get back to what you know Dover used to be and some of the old terms that we used to use. That's a great initiative. I appreciate you coming in. Have a great day. Been fun. Yeah, thank thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. 
Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week. Thank you.